The moment I dumped him, I started to look into him. And then over subsequent days and weeks and months, I discovered the full extent of what a fraud he was. We'd been seeing another woman the whole time we'd been together. He didn't live in the Harborside house. He was of no fixed address at the time we were going out. Effectively, uh, he was a hobo who went between me and this other woman and deserted boats on the harbour. I discovered he had a, a, a criminal record for a fraud-related conviction and that he was bankrupt. So there was no way he could have been buying all of these mansions and blocks of land that he, he said he was. Well, once I realised those things about him, I could see the extent of his deception and the extent of his storytelling over the 14 months we'd been together. And it really was quite literally gobsmacking. <laughs> Welcome to Hackable Me, the podcast that takes you deep into the world of cybercrime and data security. I'm Katie Finlayson. In previous episodes, we've looked at malware, phishing and nation-state attacks. Today, we're getting personal. We meet Stephanie Wood, a woman in search of love. And we learn how cyber criminals exploit our most human qualities for more than just money. I met Jo in 2014 through online dating. As most people meet their partners these days, um, he was the first person that reached out to me through the, the dating site and we had a, a brief email conversation over a week or so and then decided to catch up and we met for drinks in the city. Our first date, I walked into this bar and, and he was there early and one of the first things I noticed which really came to annoy me was that he had a broken front tooth <laughs> and at the time I I sort of thought, oh, well, everyone's got flaws and failings. Don't be so hard on him because he's got a broken front tooth. I guess if I thought about it a little bit more, um, I would have thought, well, a really rich man, as he's claiming to be, would have had his front tooth fixed. But at the time, I wasn't thinking about that. And we drank red wine, and I think there may, may even have been a candlelight. But he did talk an awful lot about himself and sheep because he claimed to be a sheep farmer. And I asked intelligent questions, which he later complimented me on my intelligent questions about sheep. And he paid the bill for a couple of glasses of wine and maybe a snack. And I hopped in my taxi and I thought, yeah, I don't care if I never see him again. And I don't think I thought about him again until he reached out via email and a, a day or so later and asked me out again. Sounds like a pretty lacklustre first date. So why did Stephanie go out with Joe again? I went out with him again, I guess, because I was bored and lonely. I've been single for a really long time. I had a really interesting life. I have a really interesting life. I'm busy, I'm engaged, I'm active, I'm always doing something different. But I guess you get bored with your own company, I suppose. Um, and I think it was just like, oh, why not? So many people are entreat you, don't be so fussy. Your mother says, don't be so fussy. Or someone else says, give the, give the poor guy a go. Um, and I just thought, oh, why not? He sent me a text message after that second date saying he could have talked to me all night. And flattery, my God, it's so powerful. And I just took that and ran with it. 
that he was into me. And the moment I started to think that he was a little bit into me, that also completely perverted my senses of being sensible, really. And, of course, that's not a reason to keep seeing someone. But um, I think maybe my guard was down because it had been so long since I'd dated anyone. You already know Stephanie's story doesn't end well. But when you're falling in love, sometimes you're not as clear thinking as you otherwise might be. There are a lot of reasons that people like me fall for men like Joe. Some of them are scientific, some of them are just human nature. It's very humiliating initially to realise that you've been duped like that. But once I started to research the reasons that people can be convinced by these storytellers, I came to see that it's a very complex mix of science and human nature that, that lead us towards these people. For a start, when we, we fall in love, there are a whole lot of hormones in our brain that are going crazy. They're not behaving the way they normally do. So our critical judgment is, is way off at the outset of a, of a love affair. Then, I mean, the, the longer you're in a love affair, the more immersed you become in it and it's harder to extricate yourself, even though you might be seeing signs. Looking back, there were plenty of signs that something about Joe wasn't quite right. One time he, he was running late and he messaged saying he had a flat tyre. And, of course, he's in a tunnel, on a major highway. It had to be the most dramatic story he could tell and something had happened and someone had tried to come and help him and eventually it was fixed and... He eventually arrived at my place and I noticed his hands. I said, oh, your hands are very clean for someone that's just changed a tyre. And he did this whole, oh, I went to so, I stopped at a service station to wash them. I didn't want to come here with dirty hands. I went to so much trouble to clean them for you. He patently had not just changed a tyre, but he would always explain away things. He just was so good at it. Most scammers or imposters are after money. They lure vulnerable people into trusting them with their hearts and their bank accounts. In this case, however, Joe's motivations were slightly different. I think Joe's motivation was a complex mixture of wanting affection, sex, and also an audience. Uh, I really think that he is such a straw man, I suppose, such a fragile man with such an empty, hollow shell that he doesn't really exist unless other people are telling him how good he is. And I guess that's a role that I played and his other girlfriend played really well. We sat and listened to his stories with open mouths and told him how clever he was. Um, now looking back, I'm horrified that that was what I did and that I suppressed my own personality so much and for so long. But I think I played the perfect girlfriend who gasped at the right moments and told him how clever he was at other moments and provided that audience for him, um, which effectively was building his self-esteem when there was very little else that was. And so it, I allowed him to immerse himself ever more in his storytelling. And I really firmly believe that he actually believed many of the stories he told, even the most ridiculous, wildest stories that I now know were not true. I think some part of him believed them. How was Joe's deception revealed? I said, I must see your house. I've been telling you this. It's a deal breaker. I've got to see your house. And so finally he said, okay, come and see my house. And come for pizza with the kids. And so I said, great. And I put it in my diary. And I think by that stage I was pretty 
doubtful it would actually happen. And sure enough, he cancelled on me. And I said, you know, this is a deal breaker. And he said, sure, come over tomorrow night. And sure enough, the next night he cancelled again. Both times with, I mean, I suppose they're plausible excuses if you've got children and and a dog. The first night he cancelled, he said that his daughter had forgotten to tell him that she had an event on at her school that she needed to go to. And the second night, his dog was sick. It it was enough to make me realise that I couldn't keep going like that because I'd reached such a state of high anxiety that my health was suffering and I was a complete unfunctioning mess. And so uh, that's when I dumped him. Joe's deception took a heavy toll on Stephanie. Being deceived as I was by a man like Joe was just utterly, utterly devastating. It, it just plays games with your mind like nothing I've ever experienced before. It really fundamentally alters your sense of what's right, of truth, I suppose. Um, I think most people are very honest and I, I, I was unfortunate enough to find myself with someone who has no moral framework and who is just utterly deceitful. He would, it, it's easier for him to lie than it is for him to tell, tell the truth. And that has fundamentally shattered, and probably will, I would say, for the rest of my life, my my capacity to trust people. Trust, vulnerability, the desire to be loved, or at the very least, liked. These are the same traits that cyber criminals exploit when infiltrating an organisation as well. My name's Joanne Mihalchich. I'm a research fellow in the Faculty of IT at Monash University in Melbourne. I often talk about safety and cybersecurity because they are actually so closely connected, they're almost the same thing. You need to have a sense of what it means to be safe as well as to keep things secure. And for human beings, safety isn't about just keeping data safe. It's about the relationships we have with people. It's about feeling safe in the environment that you're working in and the team that you're collaborating with, about the authorities within your organisation. Safety is really important and sometimes the way we feel safe can be really different to the behaviour that plays out. When we go to work, we bring our whole selves with us, all of our human traits, and this includes our need for social interaction and our desire to trust. This can be the cyber criminal's greatest weapon. We're very susceptible to cybersecurity scams because we're very social creatures. We're used to relating to other people and when we do that, we actually have ways of trying to understand whether they're trustworthy, whether we can count on them, trying to understand what they're trying to do. We're constantly making decisions about who and what can be trusted in both our personal and our professional lives. These decisions are so frequent that they often happen on a subconscious level. So the current approval process is if you think in contemporary work cultures, if you think about workflow processes both face-to-face or online, so people will receive a piece of information that they need to then approve and then it gets forwarded on to somebody else. And that's how maybe a payment gets made, timesheets are approved. When we receive emails asking for for things to be approved or payment to be made, they're often coming from a person and you may or may not know them. And so therefore, there's a lot of judgment being made about 
you know, is this trustworthy or not? Our vulnerability, our desire to trust others, these human qualities can be intensified in stressful situations like the COVID-19 pandemic. At a time like this when we're all in isolation and we're craving the need for um, connection, it can make us even more vulnerable. A really interesting example is how scammers are tapping into what is happening in our environment with COVID-19 and the anxiety and the fear that people have. They are able to, I suppose, tap into some of our vulnerabilities and some of that fear and the fact that we may not be working at our full potential in terms of being able to identify what is trustworthy or not. It's really easy to criticise people for connecting in this way and feeling duped or you can blame yourself, but it is such a human need. And I think this is what the scammers and all the phishing is tapping into at the moment. And I think what we're seeing now is where you know, employers may actually be saying, be kind to yourselves, be kind to yourselves. You, know, you can't expect yourselves to function in this environment in the same way that you would normally. But the reality is I think people are, are actually trying to maintain their productivity and that's difficult. Does the rise of online activity during the COVID-19 pandemic present increased risks? When we're communicating with people, and that's what a lot of technology is about, we're, we're actually using the same conversational modes that we might use face-to-face, -face, but we don't necessarily have the cues that we might normally have with people we don't know. And scammers are very clever and they know how to tap into our feelings, our emotions. There's a lot of um, research around how to diagnose people as maybe being more susceptible due to their age, their gender. There's a whole range of these sorts of factors. But when it comes to the human connection, it's far more difficult. And I don't think any of us is completely safe. Going back to Stephanie's story, Joe's use of technology was key to his deception. My relationship with Joe could never have happened without technology. For a start, I met him through online dating. And online dating, just by its very nature, allows people to tell either fraudulent or crazy stories about themselves and their achievements and about who they are. But very simple technology of sending photographs via text messages also lured me into the Joe trap because he would send me any number of photographs a day showing me, oh, this I'm on the farm, look at my sheep, or, oh, I got my car bogged, to, my ute bogged today, look, it's stuck in the mud. I really didn't question those photographs. After I broke up with him and I was starting to explore things, I first of all discovered Google reverse image search and that was able to uncover for me the photograph that he'd taken of his bog ute was not his car at all but someone else's in a completely different state at a completely different time and Joe had just cropped out the edges so that the people in the original photograph were no longer in the photograph. And now I look back at the photographs of the sheep or a paddock and I can, I can tell 
well, that could be any sheep, any paddock, anywhere in the world. And, and it seems so self-evident now, but the simple thing of sending a photograph via text, look what I'm doing right now, I fell for that. And it, it, it's, it's so simple, but it's probably the largest way in which technology allowed him to convince me that his stories were true. Now, several years down the track and following the, the subject of online frauds and con artists, as I do just out of interest now, it's really clear how con artists can target people through technology. I don't feel I was specifically targeted as such because we just met through online dating. But obviously, such is technology now that men particularly, whether they be a West African gang or um, someone working out of Cambodia or some an individual committing fraud, they can target specific people that they think might be more vulnerable to their stories simply by tracking people on social media. For victims, the impact of this fraudulent activity can be deep and long-lasting. The repercussions for people who have been scammed is on a number of levels. So there's obviously, sometimes it's the financial, it can be the emotional, it can all be also be that sense of loss of trust in other people, embarrassment. It's very easy to look back at things and think, oh, I shouldn't have been so gullible or vulnerable, but that's not the way it is. I receive emails that are phishing and I read them and they're menacing and I think, oh, my goodness, and I feel terrible and I have to press delete. Or when I get those phone calls, I have to learn to hang up, even though it might feel like it's being rude. There is a human cost because it's not the way we normally behave towards people and that is challenging. With a bit of distance, Stephanie can now look back on her experience with Joe with a clearer mind. What advice would she give to those looking online for love? I think that it's important to remain fairly removed until you establish certain key things about someone to try not to become too immersed too quickly. And I, that's incredibly difficult when it's love that you're talking about and you think that you're in the throes of it. But I now would advise myself to step back, to be cool, to see how things go, and not to place so much importance on a man after four dates. He built a fantasy life in which I was going to be included. Now I look back and I, I can see that when I broke up with him, I didn't just lose him, but I lost the idea of the way my life was going to be. And Part of the problem there was that I let him so quickly convince me that I was going to have this life with him. Even before I'd really worked out whether I liked him enough for that to be what should happen. According to Joanne, a desire to trust is not necessarily a weakness. It's often said that people are the weakest link, particularly in cybersecurity. I really dislike that. I think that people are actually our biggest resource. Because when the technology fails and no system is 100% secure, I think we rely on our people, on your employees and your clients actually who are using systems. They're the ones who may actually pick these things up and protect your organisational enterprise systems as well. The ability to trust others is an inherent part of being a human. It underlies how we relate to others 
not just in our personal lives, but in our work as well. The challenge, however, is in determining who is worthy of that trust. My thanks to our guests, Dr. Joanne Mihalchik and Stephanie Wood. Stephanie's book, Fake, a startling true story of love in a world of liars, cheats, narcissists, fantasists and phonies, is out now through Penguin Books. You can learn more at proofpoint.com slash hackableme. I'm Katie Finlayson, and this is Hackable Me. In the next episode, we look at how cybercrime is evolving. We travel into the future and learn how technological advances could facilitate cybercrime at an alarming scale. Hackable Me was produced by Enigma Marketing and Audiocraft. Music is from Epidemic Sound. Subscribe to Hackable Me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player.